0: Join Greenbook at the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange Conference Series. IIEX is your global hub for connections, inspiration, and innovative solutions in market research. Visit greenbook.org slash events to learn more about events in Asia, the Americas, and Europe. Use the code podcast for 20% off general admission on all upcoming events.
1: This episode is brought to you by our friends at Stravito. Stravito is a user-friendly enterprise insights management platform Purpose built for high adoption and impact. To learn more, check out their website at stravito.com. That's S T R A V I T O.com. Hello, everybody. It's Lenny Murphy with another episode of the Green Book Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, spend uh, 45 minutes to an hour with us. I think uh, all of these conversations are great, but I've been particularly looking forward to this one because we have a true legend joining us today uh, and a man that I'm privileged to, uh, to call a friend as well. Jay Walker Smith, Chief Knowledge Officer of Brand and Marketing at Kantar Consulting. Walker, welcome.
2: Thanks very much, Lenny. I, I really appreciate being here, and uh, and I just like to say as well that this is one of the premier talking spots uh, for our industry. So I'm I'm very honored uh, to be here as a guest today. Thank you for asking me. Uh, well, flattery will get you everywhere, my friend.
1: So <laughs> now we could take the whole hour and read off your bio and your accolades uh, for those who don't know you. Why don't you give us a little bit about
2: who you are and your background? Sure. So. As you said, I'm with uh, Kantar, and a lot of what I do at Kantar is related to content around big macro trends in the marketplace that bear on things that we can do to improve how brands connect with consumers. So I broadly describe it as kind of horizon scanning. That's a lot of what I do, and I've I've done that for uh, a number of years uh, prior to Kantar. In 2008, I was the president of Yankalovich. Yankalovich merged into a firm with Kantar, which is how I came to be at Kantar. And that's uh, that's a lot of what I was doing at Yankalovich as well. Written a few books. A couple of them are about generational issues. So, you know, that has a bearing on how things are unfolding in the marketplace today as well. And I got my start in consumer packaged goods. So I used to be on the client side doing research and and helping brand managers try to figure out strategies and tactics. So I've done a lot of things over the years, but uh, the kind of thing that I'm doing now, I think is particularly important because there is a lot of change going on in the marketplace today. It's difficult for our clients to keep up because they've got their heads down on the business, but a lot of the things that they're dealing with are being driven by a lot of macro changes in the marketplace at large. So it's great to be here and talk about some of these things today. Oh, thank you. And yeah, we're going to have a lot
1: of fun talking about those macro trends. You left out one important part of your bio, though, that you are the proud owner of some of the only remaining TAB Apex (laughs) in the world.
2: Uh, So (laughs) you have a huge fondness for TAB. I am a TAB fan from way, way back. It was one of the significant moments in my life when the Coca-Cola company announced they were doing some... Portfolio streamlining, and we're taking Tab off the marketplace. So I became a Tab hoarder for a few months, and I'm slowly but surely working my way through it. I was warned by a lot of people, by the way, that soft drinks like this have a limited shelf life. You've got to drink them within a few months of actually buying them. But I I would just like to go on record as saying that while that may apply to other soft drinks, that does not apply to Tab. Tab is the ultimate nuclear winter soft drink and my collection, I think proves that. So, <laughs> right, I am a tab fan. <laughs> all
1: right, we could riff on that alone for a little while, but we uh, but we won't. put him, of all the trauma of 2020, that so that was the, that was just the, the straw that broke the camel's back for that you. Was,
2: that was the coda to my year. As bad as everything else went that year, they took tab off the marketplace and. At the end of December, it was not to be found on store shelves anymore. I did buy a few 12-packs on Amazon in January and February of 2021, but then the prices got far out of my, uh, my budget, so I, man, I'm just kind of living with what I've got. But you're <laughs> right, 2020 was kind of a tumultuous year for a lot of reasons. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll leave the tab conversation alone. But, so
1: let's dive in, because- sure. So what I've looked at from the insights, well, not even just in the insights industry. I, I, it's kind of across the board. Obviously, 2020 and COVID particularly was a, uh, I'll we'll call it black swan because I think we could all anticipate something like that was going to happen at some point. But in many ways, it changed and disrupted lots of aspects of the world. In many ways, it accelerated trends that were already in play, particularly in our industry. And I think that we are still looking at a very long tail of follow on effects, macroeconomic, cultural, et cetera, et cetera. What's your take on that?
2: Well, that was the question we got asked most often during 2020, you know, what's gonna stick? That was was kind of the question. Because in March of 2020, we experienced this global involuntary experiment in, digital lifestyles, kind of lived without social connection or community. So we just basically went into lockdowns and quarantines around the world. And there were a lot of kind of medical crises that hit places like China and Italy and New York and all kinds of other places. I, I don't mean to leave any place out. And we just had to kind of reset our expectations and our aspirations. And we learn things that we probably never would have learned without having gone through this. So as bad as all of that was, I do think one of the interesting things is we got to look at what kind of a, I don't know, 95% digital only lifestyle looks like. And, you know, people just said, I don't really like this. And there was more pushback against that than I think we would have anticipated back in 1998 or, you know, 2005 or 2018, you know, when we were kind of looking at the future over this period of time, kind of after the dot-com boom really put digital on our radar and began to put it in our hands, I think we had some pretty high expectations about digital just becoming kind of a a lifestyle driver in a way that we really experienced during the year 2020. So to me, one of the big things that has happened since then is this kind of pushback against digital. So, you know, McKinsey famously said in July of 2020 that we had gone through 10 years of digital evolution in 90 days. And that sort of became an Internet meme and people really believe that. The implication of that was that digital growth had spiked and reset itself to a higher plateau of growth. So it would kind maybe would still grow at the same rate, but it would be growing from a higher base post pandemic than pre pandemic. Actually, what we've seen is that in relative terms, digital e-commerce I'm referring to here has come back to its pre pandemic growth curve. So it's still growing, but on a share basis, it is not you know, dominated all retail. It did spike, but its its share growth came back to the pre-pandemic growth curve. And we see this in anecdotal ways in streaming, in virtual meetings like this, in telehealth and all these kind of digital things. They're fine, but people are saying, you know what, I want more analog. And just to, just to stay on this topic for a second, Lenny, I don't, I don't mean to go on and on here. If you had talked to me in 2017 or 2018 and said, what, what is the thing you're talking about to clients most right now? I would have said the idea of human scale or the idea that all of this talk about digital immersion and our lifestyles are being overtaken by digital technologies kind of ignores the fact that all around us, there is this analog boom going on. And I used to just run off a laundry list of things, you know, record numbers of farmer's markets, food truck culture, cafe culture, coffee shop culture, buy local, urban greenways, walkable neighborhoods. All of these things were going on at the exact same time that we were becoming more and more immersed in digital. So I think if we just looked closely in 2017, 2018, 2019, what we saw was, People are making greater use of digital tools, but they are also more engaged in analog or human-scale lifestyles. And I think that's what we're seeing now post-pandemic. There is a big boom in all things analog. And just to say one last thing about this, I believe this is reflected in the single biggest change of the pandemic and the thing that will last, and that is the rise of hybrid work. And just to, just to kind of calibrate this now, because, you know, a lot of people go, oh, hybrid work, blah, blah, blah. Pre-pandemic, as tracked by the Commerce Department, the percentage of work days, not employees, but work days that were worked at home instead of an office across all categories of work in the U.S. economy was about 5%. And predictions you know, during the pandemic and what we've seen unfold was that that might triple or at most quintuple. So if it triples, it's 15% of all work days. That's a huge change, tripling, but it's still just 15% of all workdays. Now, that's across all sectors, so it's clearly higher in, in uh, knowledge work like ours, but it's still not, you know, the overwhelming bulk of, of work days, and even at its highest you know, if it unfolds at fivefold increase, that's just 25% of all work days. So we are moving to a hybrid work economy, but it's not like it's taken over. There's still a lot of work that's going to be done in offices. The critical thing from a marketing standpoint is this kind of shift in critical mass. So, uh, you know, in lots of businesses, you make your most money For the last item that you sell, not for the first item that you sell, because you have kind of covered all your costs and all the initial things you sell. And then everything after that is, you know, close to pure profit. True more for digital than it is for other industries. But it's always this marginal cost of the last thing you produce where you tend to have your highest profitability. And so now you skim off the top of this for industries and categories that are centered around, you know, office work, you know, quote unquote, like, for example, convenience stores, you know, that depend upon people driving back and forth to work. That's a large part of their business. Impulse buying like that. You skim that off and you move it to the home and you've kind of taken away some of the most profitable dollars for a lot of industries so they've kind of lost that critical mass they haven't lost all of it they have just lost the most profitable part of it and you put it over here in the home and now all of a sudden you've you've created a critical mass of new opportunities you know money to be spent in a different location for different habits for different routines so hybrid work even though it's not the majority of work days and it's not going to shift the bulk of spending, it is going to have a pretty significant impact in the way in which it's shifting critical mass in the marketplace. And critical mass is where innovative new opportunities are always to be found. And that's what we're saying to our clients. Follow the money here, really. Follow the critical mass and hybrid work i think is the single biggest thing coming out of the pandemic and it is a reflection of the fact that people are looking for ways to reconfigure their lifestyles that are all about human scale interaction i want more control over my time i want more interaction with my family i want less time spent commuting I don't actually like the office all that much people are just demanding uh, something different so that's a much longer answer than you were expecting but uh, but i it is a it is a critical topic for a lot of our clients. If you're in the automobile business, if you're in the retail business, if you're in the travel business, if you're in the entertainment business, ju- just trying to figure this out is really central to your future planning. No, that was
1: not too long of an answer. Actually, my brain's going lots of different directions. Uh, there, was, there was one thing that really stuck out, and I, I love the entire explanation, but that idea of the pushback towards uh the full digitalization right like i i don't think we're we're anywhere near uh, a ready player one world right uh, <laughs> I, 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 yeah i don't think the metaverse is gonna magically <laughs> transform everybody anytime no soon. no
2: i i would agree
1: yeah yeah and not just what's interesting is five years ago for me particularly i'd loved ready player one as a book and as a movie and you know that that, that concept but now. I have a visceral resistance to it, you know, right. Uh, Oh, hell no. No, I don't want to live that way. You know, that human connection. And it makes me aware that there's a hype component to so much of this that almost verges on behavioral conditioning (laughs) Uh, (laughs) while not recognizing this innate human pushback for that. So, Here's my question for you. One, whether you agree with that. But what yeah. secondly, well, I agree. Yeah. okay, from a trends, if I think of I think of you as in essence a, a trend spotter, yeah, right? Yeah, you, sure. you, you analyze trends. So for a business, you're a marketing director in a business and you're paying attention to the hype as well. And you're thinking my entire our, our product line, our marketing plan, et cetera, is based on this ready player one we use as an example future. How do you go in and say, yeah, not so fast. Don't get caught up in the hype because the reality is this is what's happening and it may be very different than this, this perception we're all being exposed to on a regular basis. And I don't mean that in any malignant way. I think it's no, just... No, no. well,
2: I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I agree with you, you know, what you just described. I do think there is a future for the metaverse and, and I think it's a couple of things. So one is there's a segment of people who want to be fully immersed in the metaverse. Uh, Today, we know them as online gamers, but I I think we'll see expansion of that as metaverse technologies become a little more accessible to people. So, you know, when you put on the headset now, you leave it on there for two hours and you've got a lot of headset fatigue. So, you know, you, you probably have to be 15 years old to kind of, power your way through that. I've sat there with it on for two hours, and, and I, I've kind of reached my limit. So when you get to be my age, you need a better technology. And there are better technologies in development. And, you know, Google Glass didn't really work a long, long time ago. I actually bought one. It wasn't a really good technology. But those kinds of technologies are a lot better these days. And so there will be a segment, and that segment will expand as those technologies improve. For most people, though, I think what they're going to be looking for is for digital and for things like the metaverse, you know, virtual elements, augmented elements, they're going to be looking for that to improve their human scale interactions. It's kind of like, you know, I want my retail experience to be better. So how can you use digital technologies to give me a better retail experience? So Omnicommerce is one of those examples, you know. And, of course, with Omnicommerce, you got to figure out the the problem of impulse shopping. There are a lot of brands that are dependent upon retail impulse shopping, so there's a lot of work being done now to figure out what the new impulse is going to be. But I think for the most part, and, you know, something like sports viewing, right? So I, I want to be a fan, and I want to go to a game, or I want to watch it on TV, I don't want to go into the metaverse to do that, but it sure would be great if there were some virtual technologies or some augmented reality systems that could enhance that experience for me. So how can you use digital to make analog better? I mean, that's the way I sort of oversimplify it for clients, is to say, pay attention to human scale. Pay attention to what we were seeing pre-pandemic Pay attention to what we're seeing post pandemic. Human scale is really important. And what we ought to be doing is not trying to work to develop digital systems to replace analog engagement. We should be developing digital systems to enhance analog engagement. And I, I think that's where the future is. So, you know, uh, medicine, interactions with your doctors. Self management or self care of uh, medical conditions, mental well being, physical, chronic uh, conditions that you may have. How can digital technologies be used to kind of help you do that better? You know, people like seeing a doctor. So, how do you, how do you use digital technologies to make that human scale engagement with your physician even better? I think there are lots of ways to do that. And I, there is a lot of work going on in the healthcare space uh, around that. But, you know, when you, when you start thinking about digital technologies as a replacement for analog stuff, when you start saying, how can I use AI to get rid of the doctor? I think that's the wrong thing to be trying to do because people want to see a doctor. So if you were to say, how can I use AI to help people have a better interaction with their doctor or an enhanced human scale engagement with their doctor, then I think you're working on stuff that is going to be better. And I think that's where the metaverse has to go. And I don't know where meta is headed uh, with a lot of their internal research on this, but I, I think the little video that. Mark Zuckerberg used to kind of introduce the idea of the metaverse, you know, kind of proposes an alternative world. And I don't know that the future is in alternative worlds so much as it is in enhanced worlds that we have right now. So again, I think that's the lesson pre-pandemic. That's the lesson post-pandemic, and we just ought to pay attention to that cue because it is, it is a pretty significant bit of, of guidance that people are giving us about what they want out of digital technologies. We're going to take a quick pause to
1: highlight our podcast partner, Stravito. If you didn't know, Stravito is a user-friendly insights management platform purpose-built for high adoption and impact. With Stravito, you can easily centralize, curate, and share your insights, enabling self-service access and increasing insights usage company-wide. Consumer behavior is complicated enough. Leveraging your insights shouldn't be. Learn more at their website, stravito.com. That's S-T-R-A-V-I-T-O.com. Now let's complicate that a little bit more, at least another variable, which is as we are recording this, the, you know, the recession is only increasing in severity. And uh, (laughs) the whole world seems a little crazy right now for a variety of other reasons, right? Food shortages, supply chain, you know, the economic conditions, yada, 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 which I would say at the core are very human centric issues. Right. You're talking about how people pay their bills, how they buy their food, you know, where they get their food, pretty brick and mortar uh, situations impacting a lot of people. So I'm not asking you to be put on a crystal ball, but what is your take? Keep in mind everything we just said of now we have this situation. What impact will this very confusing macroeconomic set of variables? What do you think? how that's going to play out and affect all this.
2: Yeah. So for the last uh, few years, the other thing that I've been talking about, in addition to human scale, is the new normal of disruption. So we started really talking about this seriously in 2019. It was kind of the same year, and I didn't realize that until just a few months ago, that McKinsey announced the same thing in one of their executive briefings. And the year before, Gartner had had announced it as well. Gartner had done it because they've, they've got a tracking system that looks at the degree of uncertainty across t- 10 different areas they monitor. And they have a kind of a scale they use for each of those 10 areas. And they all had reached the peak level on every single one of the 10 indicators in 2018. And so Gartner said, you know, the future is disruption. The future is volatility. The future is greater uncertainty in the macro environment in which we do business. So we've been talking about this for a while as well. And then along comes the pandemic and then along comes inflation and then along comes a ground war in Europe. And now we've got this kind of trifecta of things, which I think is a foretaste of the future and which also gives us more clarity on what we've really been going through since the turn of the 21st century. It doesn't matter what metric you look at. There are a lot of different metrics that track macro levels of uncertainty macro levels of volatility and we've seen all of these things show more volatility returning to the broader social environment since the turn of the century in particular since the beginning of the financial crisis but we're just kind of living in a in a more volatile world right now than we were Uh, prior to the turn of the 21st century. So, you know, the last 20 years have just been a little more volatile experience for consumers than the prior 20 years. And the challenge there, of course, is that a lot of our business models and and operating models in particular were developed during a period of greater stability. So supply chains that you mentioned is, you know, now become almost the cliched example of that. But supply chains, just-in-time supply chains, or the kind of globalized ties that we've relied on now for a long time really depend upon a good deal of relative stability in the marketplace they depend upon relative political stability you can't have political volatility that you know cuts off your access to a market it depends on relative economic stability you can't be negotiating futures contracts and in, in the face of lots of volatility it requires, some degree of stability and demand, you know, you've, you've got to have at least some sort of baseline understanding of the flow of goods that's going to go through your supply chain. Otherwise, you'll you might all of a sudden need to get more through it. And it just, you know, clogs up at choke points, kind of like it's been doing now. So there's a lot of a presumption of stability that's built into a lot of our ways of doing business that this increasing volatility in the world around us is challenging. And as we look ahead, it's pretty easy to see that the volatility is just going to be a bigger part of of where we're headed. So there are things we know about that have yet to fully unfold. E-commerce, AI, we know about them but we know what they'll do, they just, they just aren't here, you know, yet really in full force. And then there are things we don't really know about, like, hy- I mean, we can see them, we just don't know what effect they'll have. Hybrid work, cryptocurrencies, notwithstanding all the recent turmoil in those markets, mobile commerce, you know, omnicommerce is kind of somewhere in the middle of these two things I just mentioned. And then there's systemic issues. You know, so climate is one of those, cybersecurity is one of those. Some of these systemic issues are, you know, probably good things, but they're going to be disruptive, like biomedical advances, which uh, seem to be on the verge of accelerating. Advances in materials, sciences, I mean, there are all kinds of things that are going to have great effects, but they're going to be disruptive. So we're just looking at a future that's going to be characterized more and more by this kind of volatility. And I think this is the way people are experiencing this kind of inflationary spike that we're in right now. So when you plot month-to-month changes in the inflation rate in the U.S., going back to you know, the end of World War II, what you see is you know, the 70s were a pretty tumultuous period of time. There were three major inflation spikes in the 70s, and each one was bigger than the one before it the 70s was very tumultuous. In fact, just to sort of go down this rabbit hole for a second, everything that we characterize in the world today, you could find in the 70s. There was political turmoil. There was geopolitical turmoil. There were wars being fought around the world. There were commodity shortages. There were currency crises. There's almost nothing that you could use to characterize where we are right now that was not characteristic of the decade of the 1970s. You know, that's it's the decade in which I grew up and is, And I can't repeat any of the words I typically use to describe that decade on your podcast. It was a pretty rough decade. And we came out of that into a period of time that economists describe as the great moderation because volatility was kind of squeezed out of the marketplace for a lot of reasons. But we lived through a period of relative stability. This is, this is when globalization really took off. And as I said, we developed a lot of our business and, and operating models. But the important thing for this period of time, really in the U.S. and, and in, in Europe from kind of the late 80s through today, in the U.S. from the, the mid-80s until today, we've gone through a period of time of essentially no inflation in developed markets, and where we have seen it in developing markets, it's, it's been sort of spirals of hyperinflation that kind of came and went. We've gotten pretty good, central bankers have gotten pretty good, you know, they got overwhelmed by the pandemic, but they've gotten pretty good at, at keeping inflation kind of low, and not only that, when you look closer at the data, what you see is that over this period of decades, it was not just no inflation, it was a period of deflation, prices were actually going down. They weren't just staying low, they were actually in decline. And so now you have two or three generations of consumers in the marketplace, 30-somethings, 40-somethings, 50-somethings, who have never lived through a period of inflation like we have right now. They have no experience with it. And the same thing is true for brand managers. We don't have any business leaders who ever manage businesses through inflationary periods like this. So. This is pretty unfamiliar. And this unfamiliar, by the way, and this is just a confluence of bad luck, is piling in on top of what I refer to as a global mental health crisis. The pandemic lockdowns and quarantines triggered a crisis of anxiety around the world. The the spike in the U.S. is jaw-dropping. CDC tracked annually kind of a baseline of people reporting anxiety symptoms in the 8% neighborhood. As soon as the quarantines and lockdowns started and all the concern was raised about COVID, anxiety levels spiked in the U.S. to over 30% of the population and stayed that high through kind of the middle of 2021. They've come down, but they're still in the 20s. So still a lot higher than it was pre-pandemic. And now you got inflation piling in uh, on top of that. So this kind of unfamiliar world of volatility, of inflation, of something I've never experienced before, don't really know how to manage my way through, is occurring in the middle of all this anxiety. And just to darken this picture even a little more, it's occurring at a period of time in which people are having to reinvent their lifestyles because of the pandemic. So hybrid work, I mean, we may as well call it hybrid life because you have to reinvent your life you know if you start working from home it's a new habits new routines it's a whole different way of existing it's a particularly vulnerable moment and at this vulnerable moment it anxiety inflation volatility you add it up this is this is just a new world and so brands i think have got to be much more in the business of helping consumers manage risk exposure than just kind of delivering category benefits per se people do not want to feel like doing business with your brand exposes them to some kind of risk, you know, and it might just be spending that $20 that I might discover I need next week just to put food on the table. So, so brands have got to, they've got to kind of get in the business of doing some things to help people with this sense of of risk exposure. Now admittedly these are macro events that brands have no control over, but brands can be allies in this with consumers and I think this is kind of an important part of this. But I I think we're I think we're in a new reality where this kind of volatility is just going to be just gonna be with us uh, for a while, and it's just gonna characterize a period of time that we're gonna have to deal with here in the near future. The good news is, There are two sides to the disruption coin. So disruption also brings more dynamism. So incumbent business models get unseated. And as I was saying earlier, critical mass appears in new places. It's all kind of interesting. There are lots of new opportunities. And we've all sat through the McKinsey and the BCG presentations where they say the best time to innovate is in recessions. The best time to advertise is in recessions. You always need to be preparing your brand for post-recessions, during recessions, you know, I mean, we've heard all this. And and so it's kind of like, all right, well, we studied that in school and we passed the exams. And now we actually have to find the courage to really kind of invest in a moment that seems pretty uncertain to us as business managers. But I, I think if we fail to do that, we're going to lose an opportunity because consumers are looking for us to to do some innovative things for them right now and in, in this moment. I don't mean to make this moment sound so dark and foreboding, but I do think it's really different. And I think we are only just now beginning to realize this has been rolling up on us. We haven't really seen it, but now we're in the middle of it and we've got to, we've got to plot a new uh, course ahead. I couldn't agree more, not, not to pile on, but I would also say
1: an era of massive institutional distrust at every level, including brands. You know, so, if we think of those as as institutions, and I think some certainly well could be considered that. But I love where you went at the end of opportunities. One of the things that I did early on in 2020 to stay sane was trying to think through what are some of the positive outcomes of of these things. And without being nearly as erudite as you, a few thoughts were okay Well, we're going to solve these supply chain issues via decentralization through localization you mentioned farmers markets those type of things this human scale and as you were talking i was thinking yeah and some of our listeners know but we're we're in the midst of a move to deeply rural kentucky uh bought a small farm and all of our neighbors are amish oh Um,
2: wow
1: yeah so there's a there's one piece of like man what are you thinking that's crazy but in this era in this moment of time i am also keenly aware of if that idea of building localized systems right that's a pretty darn good example even of that community of how that works and then becomes an issue of now how do we scale that and what are the long-term ramifications of that but that term you keep using around human scale that resonates as maybe that is the opportunity through all of this volatility or at least a piece of it and through this disruption to kind of use technology as it's supposed to to make life easier and, and augment but not to replace and instead really focus on this localization and decentralization i um, mean even self-sufficiency to an extent to
2: build some of these
1: resources. And as you said, that's something none of us have lived through.
2: Well, I think, I think we don't know what the complete answer is. And I do think globalization in whatever form it takes, is going to look different. And it's going to be characterized by a lot more kinds of localized things, you know, more robust systems that Invest some in backup systems and those kinds of things uh, that we haven't had. There are some things where I don't think you know globalization is going to go away. We're still going to have globalization of information exchanges, knowledge exchanges in particular. But this dependence on sort of global stability that supply chains embody, uh, I think, is something that we took for granted, and that we're we're learning might not really be such a good idea. And I think it's interesting that you mentioned trust. You know, I think trust, I mean, a lot of what we see at Kantar is people's sense of trust in institutions always revolves around a feeling that there is an alignment of interest. So I don't know what the agenda of a bank might be, but the bank is going to pursue its agenda and whatever it does is going to benefit my interest. So as long as they Pursue their interest; it also benefits my interest. And I mentioned banks because I think one of the takeaways that people have had coming out of the financial crisis was that, gosh, we really, we really can't rely upon institutions to to align their interests with ours. Because I I thought that mortgage broker had my interest in mind when they talked me into that really good mortgage. I had no idea all they cared about was the fee, and had no concern at all that they might be putting me into a mortgage that suddenly I'm not able to afford or that they might even have been able to foresee that I was unable to afford. And I I think people have just become much more skeptical that institutions operate in ways that align their interest with our interest or with, with uh, consumers' interests. I think we see that in political institutions. Uh, I think we see that in commercial institutions. I think we see that in all kinds of non-governmental institutions. I think people are increasingly questioning this alignment of interest. And once you lose trust like that, it's hard to get it back. And people then pursue alternative ways of operating. But I, I think there's an opportunity for brands, you know, consumers are increasingly looking to brands. So there's far less trust in government these days, uh, far less trust in traditional authorities. But brands, curiously, I think it's somewhat curious, continue to be institutions that people look to for guidance and for help. And a lot of brands stepped up to the plate during the pandemic. They started trying to help relieve shortages of supplies and, you know, refocus some of their manufacturing. And they went out of their way to do some things. So I think people's feeling about commercial institutions, you know, got a little bit better during the pandemic. So I think there's a moment right now where brands need to seize this. Now, this doesn't get any easier for brands, of course, because now politics is ever more in the commercial space. We've seen all kinds of examples of that. The Dobbs decision, you know, is just going to drive this even more. I think brands are increasingly faced with some choices and some situations that that they've never really had to deal with before. But I, I think the way forward for brands is to just find out how they can ensure that people feel confident that there is an alignment of interest there with the companies that they're doing business with. And, you know, I I don't know if government can do it, but I certainly think brands can do it. And I think that's, that's the place where I think brands need to step up. So there's a lot of discussion about purpose and versus mission and all that kind of thing. I think underneath it all, is this necessity to align interest, and if you do that, then I think all of these other things take care of themselves.
1: I love that and couldn't agree more. I never thought of myself as a values buyer, but increasingly that does shape some of my decisions with some of the brands that I trust. And it's the same idea of the of interest, and some of that absolutely came from the pandemic when certain brands, you know, I was able to get the toilet paper. You know, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. they met the need that I needed and that, that earns loyalty, et cetera, et cetera. I want to be conscious of time. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I think we could go on for a really long time on this. And I really hope that you will come back Walker. Well, uh, I think we'd probably both agree that, you know, give us three months and we're going to have a whole other set of things yeah. to, to probably yeah. talk about. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, exactly. But this has been a fascinating conversation. Any final words of advice for our listeners who you know are insights professionals
2: on um, both the, the buyer and the supplier side. Anything you want to impart? If I were to leave sort of one thought, it would be: we have built a lot of our planning systems and insights and the way insights feeds into those planning systems around kind of a, a model of extrapolation. So I'm over-generalizing a little bit, but it's kind of like. The past will predict the future. If we get enough big data, we can figure out where things are headed because we can can kind of use those patterns that we see to figure out what's going to unfold in the future. I think we're moving from an extrapolation world to a scenarios world where there is a lot of uncertainty and a lot of contingencies, and extrapolation is not necessarily going to point us in the right direction, but we can be prepared for whatever happens if we have explicitly laid out all of the potential scenarios and we know what plan B and plan C and plan D is, if the future takes a left turn on us. And we didn't have that in place pre-pandemic. We should have, you know, the World Health Organization just regularly tracks epidemics all over the world. You know, infectious disease epidemics are commonplace. Pandemics, you know, multi-country epidemics are less common, but they're not unknown. So, you know, the fact that the pandemic caught us by surprise, and, and by the way, Bill Gates, you know, had been warning about a pandemic for years. So this should have been on our planning horizon somewhere. You know, maybe not a capital plan B, but maybe a little letter plan B, and I think going forward in a future of volatility, we're just we're going to have to do our planning in a different way. So my thought would be, let's plan for scenarios, not merely for extrapolation. Wise advice on every level,
1: <laughs> as, as humans and, as, uh, and for businesses. So
2: really appreciate that. Walker, where can people find you? So I'm at Kantar it's J initial Walker W A L K E R Smith J Walker Smith at kantar.com All right so everybody and if you don't follow Walker on LinkedIn so I know you're you're still active on Well LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn too you can always find me on LinkedIn yeah J Walker Smith yeah on LinkedIn yeah And by the way let me just let me just add uh, Lenny that that I, I've taken to posting a little four hundred word essay every Tuesday. I call it four F O U R for Tuesday, which is just a little reflection on things going on in the marketplace. So just people can find me on LinkedIn too. And they are always worth a read. Always. So Walker, really
1: appreciate your time. Hope that you and your family are doing well, enjoying the the summer in the
2: uh, the Isle of Palms. Thanks. Good luck on your move to Kentucky. That's that's quite a quite a change. It, it is. We can chat about that offline sometime. And enjoy
1: conserving your tab stockpile. <laughs> yes, I will. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Thank you, welcome for joining us. I want to thank our producer Karen Lynch, our editor James Carlisle, our episode sponsor Stravito, and all of the Green Book team that works behind the scenes to make all of this happen. And most of all, thank you, our listeners, for sharing some time with us. I'm Lenny Murphy. That's it for now. We'll see you on the next episode of the Green Book Podcast. Bye-bye.
0: Join Green Book for the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange. This global conference series, also known as IIEX, is where connections are made, inspiration is found, and innovative solutions are discovered. With more than 90% of attendees using IIEX insights to shape strategic business decisions, the return on investment is undeniable. Whether you're in Asia Pacific, North America, Europe, or Latin America, IIEX is your gateway to the latest market research best practices, tech innovation, and strategies for transporting insights into action. Nurture your career and business with insights from across the globe. And here's a bonus. Use the special code PODCAST to save 20% on general admission for all IIEX events. Visit greenbook.org slash events today to learn more and register. See you there.